0: Gentlemen, welcome to another sample hour. Uh, super excited to have this guest here today. Uh, as I've alluded to in the previous podcast with my friend Shane McClellan, wanted to take the show kind of in the, the real estate direction. That's kind of where I've been really interested. So I'm going to transition from small-scale farming to real estate. And uh, I would encourage everyone to, if you are interested in real estate, to join your local RIA chapter. I think uh, my guest here would also agree with that. Right, Bill? Exactly. Yeah, and I think, um, so being a big fan of networking, uh, through the REIA chapter, I met this gentleman, Mr. Bill Cook here, and uh, I, I thought it was intriguing because they said, this is the guy that goes around, knocks on doors, and buys houses. Um, and I was like, oh, that sounds like something I would do or I could do <laughs> So I want to get to know this guy. And then uh, during your speech, you said you're a freedom-loving libertarian. I was like, yeah, I, I identify with that, too. I think I have a lot in common with this guy. Um, so, yeah, I guess before we get started, since now we're we're going into real estate, do you think we have to give a warning like we're not giving advice? I don't know. I never do I'm this. I'm a libertarian, so <laughs> yeah.
1: it, it, I, t- I tell people, listen, <laughs> if, if you go do something stupid, that's, that's, that's on you. you. That's so, what I think, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not the whole lawyer... Oh, my God, I'm going to get sued. I'm, I'm just not that guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so don't, don't be stupid. Don't do, do something stupid. Yeah. And never take my
0: advice. Yeah, exactly. Don't take my advice. Don't be stupid. Um, but, you know, so I think, you know, I kind of want to do a history real quick to say, because right now, you know, you are you are transitioning even from within real estate to now you're, you and your wife are going to be where I'm sitting here in your new home. And it's an RV, and right now you're living in Northwest Columbus area, and soon you'll be living somewhere else. Um, but you didn't you didn't really get started here, and I think like I kind of like to to kind of do a history of people. And so you got started in door to door sales doing Kirby's. Don't don't no
1: don't no 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 okay. no. 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 Okay. Have I ever needed a boat anchor? You know, if, you know I, I'd go get a Kirby, I, that yeah, big old yeah, heavy yeah, piece yeah. of pot
0: metal. Yeah. No, I, had a, I did Electrolux. Okay. Oh, it was. Okay, so it wasn't Kirby. No, it was your it was, My mother was your did not mom. work for Kirby.
1: Neither one of us sold boat anchors. Okay. We sold vacuums. You sold vacuums. <laughs> and we sold the best vacuum with the best service. And that was Electrolux. Not that I take this real personal, <laughs> yes.
0: but damn you. <laughs> but I think it was cool because your mom... I thought what was fascinating was your mom, back in the day, had to let your dad win all of her awards because it wasn't allowed. I don't want to make it be about your about your mom, but your mom ra- helped raise you with your father, so I think that's, that's interesting to just kind of, I think, it, and it kind of speaks to your character, because that speaks to, I mean, I was kind of taking it, I'm just, it's now coming to me now, like, it takes a lot of character to just sit there and let somebody else win your awards, even if it's somebody that you love, but...
1: No, it pissed my mother off, yeah it really it really ticked her off, yeah, it's kind of like you know she would win a golf tournament, and then my dad went and got the trophy. yeah the, my mother's a very competitive woman yeah she's uh eighty three and she just won the Palm Beach Invitational thing for the county, and she 's eighty three years old for golf yes and, and i mean she she whipped everybody 's butt. And it, she's a very competitive woman. When, she, when my sister was born, it was 1970, Enterprise, Alabama. Um, they were having a golf tournament. My mother was nine months pregnant, two centimeters dilated. She was within a day of having my sister, but she had signed up for this tournament anyway. And the doctors were like, you can't play. And she said, I'm going to play. And not only did she play, she played a flight, which is the best flight. Not only did she play a flight, she won by like four strokes. And she, I mean, she had a baby the next day. This is a tough,
0: competitive woman. And that's who raised you? Yeah, my mom and dad. Yeah. What's your dad? Is he like that competitive too? No. uh, My dad was a helicopter pilot. Uh,
1: I'm an army brat, so he moved us around the world a lot. And um, no, my dad was more working for the government guy. He always had dreams of writing a book or going into business for himself, but he never had the confidence to go do that. Yeah. Where my mother was fearless.
0: Huh. But, I mean, it, you'd have to be pretty fearless, I feel like, to fly a helicopter. Like, that seems no, scary.
1: And I'm not saying my dad wasn't a ballsy guy because he got shot down like five times. We were in Thailand before the Vietnam War started. So he was. we were on the Laotian border. And yeah. so he was flying into the Laos, Plane of jars, got shot down a lot, and then just kept going back from war. So he's a very brave man. But when it came down to business, to break away and go on your own and start your own business, he was great ideas. He always had these wonderful ideas. But when it came time to implement, he did not have the ability to
0: implement. What, um, so and and this is something that I think speaks to your character too. So you originally English wasn't your first language for a little bit. You said in the in the meeting, like
1: I was born in South America. I was born did? in Barranquilla, Colombia. So my first language was Spanish, and then we moved to um, Guatemala. So my second language was oh, I mean I, I spoke Spanish there, and then we moved to Lafayette, Southern Lafayette, down around. Uh, uh, i say in louisiana but lafayette louisiana because my dad's cajun so they all be talking like this here when they be talking they all all my native all, all my native relatives they be all cajun talk like this so when kim go to see them the first time they're like kimmy where are you from because kim had that big southern accent they don't understand that because they all be little bitty french people <laughs> and then funny.
0: thailand thailand and then, so, so then when you had to go to school, you had to, you had to learn American English, essentially. I don't know
1: English. I didn't speak a word of English. So when we were in Thailand, my brother was born in Lafayette. And three months later, my dad was already over in Thailand. So my mother took my brother, who was three months old, and then took me, and I was two and a half. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I was almost three. Put us on an airplane, and she, by herself, flew halfway around the world to Thailand. Again, tough woman, right? Yeah. And so my dad, when we were down in, you know, South America and Central America, he had learned some Spanish, never learned a word of Thai. My mother, who's from South Mississippi, turns out she was really great at languages. So she picked up Spanish and then she also picked up Thai. Now, my brother, because he grew up in Thailand, only spoke Thai, not a word of anything else. So if my mother wasn't around, if my dad wanted to ask my brother something, he would ask me in Spanish.
0: I'd ask my brother in Thai and then back the other way. And that's because your mom wanted you guys to learn to fit in in case you guys were going to be No, it's just
1: the it, we weren't on an American compound. We were in the oh. middle of nowhere.
0: And everybody around us spoke the language. We weren't around Americans. That's crazy. So then you, So how old were you when you had to learn English? Seven. Seven. So you went to, and, and it was in Georgia too? No,
1: Enterprise, Alabama.
0: Oh, in Alabama. But it was Southern, so it's, it was probably. I would
1: call it Enterprise, Alabama, Southern. It was right next to Fort Rucker. Okay. And in 68, my dad left Air America and then came to work at Fort Rucker teaching people how to fly Huey helicopters. Okay. And there, that's
0: when the Vietnam War was in full swing. Wow. So he didn't have to go, though, and. and he didn't have to. He was. Was he too old then to go and fight and? No, he'd already been there. Oh, he'd already been there. Okay. Uh, he had been shot down five times. Oh, that's right. He got shot down. Five, so shot he So wor-
1: He worked for Air America, which was just a CIA front, and they were delivering supplies and moving stuff and doing all kind of weird things out there. And so
0: that that's what he did. Hmm. So when did so when did you get settled in uh, in Georgia? So how old were you when you got settled in Georgia? I
1: moved back and forth from Georgia a number of times over the years. Okay. So the first time was in 83 80, uh, yeah, 83 and okay. then I moved away then I moved back in 84 then I moved away and I moved back in
0: 88 okay so I was I was being transferred to different places cuz of Electrolux okay so you were so you were following just Electrolux mainly so where did you get started with the uh, with door to door sales when I was 12,
1: um, I couldn't cut grass because I was allergic to grass. And in, we were at that point in time living in Louisville, Kentucky, so just south of here. Yeah. And um, when I was younger, you know, my mother would pick us up from school. And, you know, she would say, I've got a demo to go do. And so we'd stop by someone's house and she'd do the demo. But I would help her carry the equipment in or help her stuff, the shampoo or put her vacuum together or put the vacuums back in the car or go get her contract book or whatever she needed me to go do. So I'd been doing this already for two or three years. So when I was 12, I knew how to use our shampooer. And my job around the house, one of them, was to shampoo the carpets. Yeah. And so when it came time that summertime to go make money, and my dad said, that's it for allowance. You're not going to make allowance anymore. You've got to go earn your money. So I grabbed the shampooer, and I started going door to door. And I would shampoo a room of carpet, your biggest
0: or dirtiest carpet, $2.50. So you started – So <laughs> that's that's awesome. So you used – you used your mom, like your guys' own shampoo yeah. or vacuum, and you, you, so you basically, before you even sold it, you were just using it like you would cut grass, but to clean carpet. I couldn't
1: cut grass, and you got to remember back then, to cut the front yard was $2.50. Okay. To cut the backyard was 2 dollars $5 for both both things, but there were only push mowers back then. You didn't have riding mowers. There were a couple, yeah. but no one had them, not yeah. in our neighborhood anyway. Yeah. So it took you about two hours to push along, and I could shampoo my room of carpet in 10 minutes.
0: So you now you once I room. once I
1: did one, you'd always have, well, what about the hallway? Or what about another bedroom? Or and I would make, you know, five to five dollars to seven fifty, but I could make it in less than an hour. That's
0: pretty and good. And I was
1: in an air conditioned house. Yeah. That's and, real good. And then I, I wasn't pooped out afterwards, so I'd go knock on another door, and I could do, you know, four or five homes in a day. And you're talking about fifteen, twenty, twenty five dollars as a kid.
0: That's a lot. No especially, kidding. Especially this is nineteen seventy two. Yeah. So then so how old now when did you start selling like how old did you have to be to sell for electrolux? Did you so how eighteen. Old, so they wouldn't so they, they couldn't get you into Oh, I have no
1: idea if they could have. It's just when I went to college when I was I had to pay my way through school. Yeah. And my the the only way I knew of to make enough money for school was electrolux. I mean, I grew up with it. It was it was the dinner conversation. I knew what my mother was making. And i you know i I lived in by that time we were in Westport, Connecticut, so we're right on Long Island Sound, and I was an a a u swimmer all through school, and I was a very good swimmer, lifeguard everything else, and so I had visions of working on Campo Beach, yeah, being a lifeguard, boy wouldn't that have been something i was I was a lifeguard okay school. so you know <laughs> yeah. I, I mean i I had that vision in my head, and I was like, man, lifeguard on a beach, the girls, yeah, and instead, I went out every day and I sold vacuums door to door that was a hard
0: yeah. you know, thing to do, but I wanted to go to school. Yeah. And I think, and then what did you learn when you were in school? What did you learn about college? I can go a
1: lot of different ways with this. Um, one was looking back, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, You know, I, I paid my way through and that was a lot of money wasted. But at the same time, I don't know that I would have ever sold electrics vacuums. Because yeah. I wouldn't have needed that money. I, I, maybe I would have done that. Maybe I wouldn't have. I'm not sure. Yeah, And I do know the most important thing that came out of school for me was when I was a junior, because I went from Yukon uh, to a place called Westfield College in Massachusetts, there was a lady in there named, named Mrs. Coatsen. And when I was a junior, she found out I was dyslexic severely. And no one else knew that before. They just thought I was kind of stupid because I couldn't read and write very well. And yeah. her son was dyslexic and immediately, you know, the first time I handed in a paper, she called me into her office and figured that out. And that made a world of difference to me because all of a sudden I understood why I wasn't able to read very well,
0: write very well or spell anything. Yeah. And so that changed a lot for me. And I'm, I'm very grateful to her for that. And so when did so and something else, too, because I think you always were a big advocate of, of self-education, obviously. Yes. Based on where you are. So was it through? Now was your was your mother as well? Was she listening to like um, tapes and CD? Well, I guess there was just probably records. What it was back then, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it would have been vinyl. No, we
1: no we we had eight track tapes. A tracks, yeah. So I no, no. mean, no, there were um, there were tapes you could get, records you could play. Yeah. But um, mainly, my mother was not that person. She, but my dad moved out when I was fifteen. Okay. And my brother, at that point in time, was 12. My sister was five. And so her full-time job was us. Plus, she now by this time, she's managing an electrics office. So between managing the electrics office, which was a full-time job, it's an 80-hour-a-week job, plus taking care of three kids at home by herself,
0: yeah, she didn't have time to do very much of anything other yeah. than just keep her head above water. So how did you, how did you find into, because I know for me, like I, I, self-education, I don't, I don't think I even read a book until I like actually read a book, until I went into network marketing. Someone said, well, if you want to make money, you need to read books. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to start reading books then. And so I, I, for me, and then I then I was like, oh, I actually like reading. Like at school, it just kind of ruined reading for me. And then I kind of just was introduced to, oh, I could listen to stuff too, because I'd rather listen while I'm driving or like the whole, you know, your, your car is your mobile university and all that stuff. So what for you, like, how did you get introduced? Because you you told me earlier, you know, you found Zig Ziglar and Earl Nightingale when you were about 19. So I was curious, um, how that, how that kind of found you. Well, you got to start with Zig. When I was 19,
1: I was a sophomore in college and that summer I was just, I was having a really tough time making my sales because I wasn't a salesman. You know, I just, whether I sold or, you know, with my mother, she's a salesperson, Right. She she knew how to close a sale. It was important to her. That was her net worth. That was that was what she was about. And to me, it just didn't matter. You know, I've, I just I was never a pushy guy, or you're going to go do this, or else, or yeah. dump dirt on the floor. I was just not that guy. And my mother brought home um, a cassette series because, by you know, she you know it was just she had it. Someone gave it to her at the office, and it was Zig Ziglar's uh, audio book. See you at the top. And when I was listening to that. First of all, because Zig sold pots and pans, door-to-door salesman, and I'm selling vacuums door-to-door, and we're both from the South, he talked my language. So yeah. I could understand what he was saying, and it made sense. The second thing that happened was when I was listening to that early on, I heard him say, you'll get exactly what you want in life if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Yeah, And that was the biggest moment in my life. That was the biggest lesson I will ever learn in my life, I think, because what came out of that was... It was about helping. It was about doing four, not doing two. Yeah. And it was about service. And that just rung with me. just—I mean, I just remember sitting there looking at that, and that changed how I sold vacuums because I would leave a house. When I knocked on someone's door, whether they let me in or not, whether I did the demo or not, I would say, I'll give you the best service you've ever had from anybody, anytime, anywhere. And I would give them a sticker to put on their vacuum. And let's say it was a Hoover because we didn't service Hoovers, but I would. So I would take, I knew the, the guy who had Hoovers or Kirby's or whatever else. And I would go pick up their vacuum, free pickup and delivery. I would take it in and get it serviced, bring it back to them, you know, give them the, the service ticket and then maybe put $5 on top of it. And they needed bags, needed belts, wherever they needed. And because of the service I was giving, word about me spread. And that's yeah. also where the five mile circle came from because I worked a very tight area. Now we didn't have areas I just you had to make your own and so I just drew the circle and that was where I worked that's where I door knocked so
0: everybody after over the course of time got to know who I was That's awesome so it was all about um, so and that was just from man so that was that's 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 interesting so how did you find Earl Nightingale Zig talked about Earl because the, the same way that I went to Pete Fortunato,
1: I go to Pete Fortunato now, or I went to go yeah. see Jack Miller, who was another great teacher, or I go see Dyke Botterford now. Uh, these are my teachers that I go to every time they teach. I did that to Zig. So when Zig was ever in the area teaching, I went to his programs. And I read his books. And a bunch of times, you know, he talked about Earl Nightingale. And so I went and got some tapes on Earl Nightingale. And then that's when I heard The Strangest Secret. Yeah. And that was really based on what he learned from Napoleon Hill's uh, think and Grow Rich. Absolutely. And Think and Grow Rich is not about making money. It's not about money. Rich meaning the quality of your life, what you're going to have, what you'll be able to do.
0: Yeah.
1: And to sum it all up is, you know, you're the sum total of your thoughts. You are what you think about. So you got to pick your thoughts carefully. You get to choose what you think about. Yeah. So if you're brooding over something that's awful or negative, if you say, you know, no one's going to let me into this house or I'm never going to make it or I can't run this far or whatever you say, you're right.
0: Yeah.
1: But there's other people out there that say, I can make this. I can run this. People will come to the door and be nice. That also is right. So you really get to pick. And that's really a hard thing, I think, for people to wrap their minds around. Because in this day and time, you know, I'll walk through a Walmart and I'll see a guy stacking a shelf. And as I go by him, I go, man, thanks for your hard work. Great job. Looks good. And they, the guy from Walmart looks at me like I've got a third eye. Yeah. You know, the, the waitress, you, we just had lunch. Absolutely. And I just threw a five up just to say, hey, thanks. You know, I really appreciate what you did for me. You know, thanks for the tea. Great, great place.
0: Yeah. And, and, and one thing I noticed, too, is you were sure to learn her name and the lady who brought our food. Brought and, our food. And you said thank you. And
1: thank you. And I appreciate this. And great service. And I, I go out of my way to find things that people do right. And I will ignore things people do wrong. But most people, it's like they get an award for finding fault. And most bosses get an award for finding fault. And, you know, they don't trust people. So you got to you know, punch the time clock. And, you know, how long are you on your lunch break? And did you go over here? And, you know, it's just a checklist of stuff to find, make sure because they don't trust people. Yeah. And I don't get that because people are trustworthy.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, they're, they're honest. They're, they're true blue. They'll give you the shirt off their back. They're always willing to help. They'll do anything they can to help you. That is the nature of people. But if you talk to most people, they're like, oh, they'll steal from you. They're going to lie to you. It's awful out there. And that's just not the case. I, I remember reading a letter, and it talked about the generation coming up. And it talked about how awful the generation is and how they're taking everything for granted. And they don't work, and they don't have the work ethic. And uh, they're going to cause the country to go to pot. And we'll probably never be a country after this. And um, they don't care. They're liars. They're cheats. They, they're, just, they're just lazy bumps. The letter was written in 1802. Yeah. And That's I always awesome. love that. So, yeah. you know, the guys my age, because I'm pushing 60, we always look at the 20-year-olds and going, you know, they're just not nearly as good as us. But 60-year-olds have been saying this about 20-year-olds. Ever since they've been 60-year-olds. Yeah. And yeah. then the 20-year-olds say, you know, why do you have your pants buckled under your armpits?
0: Yeah. I, You know, as I get older, it's like I'm very much so... I, I, me, and my friends joke about it. We're, we're turning into the get off my lawn kids. What are you doing on my lawn? Like I, I'm obviously not like that, but if somebody's, um, you know what I mean. Like it's like the, you just change as you get older. It's and, just, and
1: see, you're you're in the RV park, right? And this is a family park. Yeah. And I walk around this park, and I watch the kids on their bicycles, and they're out playing, and they're at the pool, and they're playing ping pong, and they're all over this park. And there's a big, there's two or three uh, playgrounds here. Yeah. They're super and the kids cool are all over And I just, I, I'll take my chair and go sit and watch the kids. Cause this is kind of, you know, they're not sitting there playing video games Yeah, and they're having a ball and they're climbing on things and climbing trees and jungle gyms and doing all the things that they're not allowed to do. And here they are just having a ball. Yeah. And I, I just,
0: I want the kids to walk on my grass. That's what the grass is for. Yeah. What, when did, um, so when did you, cause you see now you, you had a ranch, so I'm guessing your allergy. I still to grass. have a ranch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're selling your ranch. Yes. Um, did your aller- allergy to grass go away, or how did that? No. So you would
1: still bush hog?
0: Did you yes. Just have to cover up in Georgia and not get. Yeah, well,
1: you see me bush hog. I've got a t-shirt on. I've got a Dickies work shirt on. I've got a pair of jeans on. I'm wearing my work boots. I've got a bandana around my neck. I'm wearing a great big hat.
0: In Georgia in the summertime.
1: Yeah, that's just how it works. You start sweating and then you start, you know, once you get coated with enough water, you stay pretty cool. Yeah. And um, I learned that May is my worst time to bush hog. So will bush hog in May. And then after it's not as green, I can bush hog in June, July and August,
0: September. So if it's a more green area, like is Ohio worse for you? I'm just curious because... In May, it's it's, it's more of new grass. Okay, then, okay, that makes sense.
1: And and so I, I... I, I did shots for a while, and then just got tired of the shots. And I just sneeze, you know. And yeah. some days are worse than others. He tried local
0: honey at all to see if that. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried, tried honey. Everything. I've
1: tried. There's a there was a, something called a neti pot where you sit there and you put water up your yeah. your nose and it comes out the <laughs> other nostril. And I felt like I was being waterboarded. And they're like, "Oh, you can do this and it works." I tried that. It no,
0: I'm I'm allergic. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um. So okay. So then, what happened to, um. So you okay? So you go to college, you you start educating yourself, going to these Zig Ziglar things. You get your college degree. What Let me you also th- add: it was Zig Ziglar, it was Earl Nightingale, Jim it Rohn. was Jim
1: Rohn. Um, I found um, Wayne Aug- Dyer early on, yeah. like in the in the, in the early eighties. Did you ever check out Ogman Dino? Yeah, no. Og uh, yeah. Uh, is
0: like one of my. That was like one of my favorites. All
1: these books that were really important, and I I think another thing that. I keyed into back then every day at lunch, uh, five days a week, you had, um, rest of the story. What's his name? Um
0: oh, this is, oh, uh, uh, yeah. uh just, anyway, he used yeah. to have a
1: program on the radio and I'll think, yeah, yeah. I'll think of it in here in a second, but it was the rest of the story. Yeah. And so he would tell, and that was, in, that was actually in the evenings. That wasn't at lunch. He did a news thing during lunch. And then at the five o'clock hour, he did the rest of the story. And it would be about somebody,
0: and he would use like their middle name or their first name, you know. Yeah, the smiling man was—he was referred to as by uh, this other guy. We'll think about it in a second. Anyway, yeah, yeah sorry, sorry.
1: So the, the the point was, he would talk about this whoever, but not give you the full name, and then all of a sudden you would find out, you know, in the end who he was talking about. Yeah. And then when he would say, and that, and now you know the rest of the story. Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey.
0: Paul yeah, Harvey. Yeah, would, So,
1: And, I, and the, what those were based on was something called Horatio Algier Award winners. So I learned about Horatio Algier Awards and they would do a write-up on every person that ever won one. And it was about someone who came from nothing, less than nothing, but became total successes. And that's who he was writing about. And it let me know that, you know, the heroes that I grew up with you know, that you look at them now and they're very wealthy. They didn't start off that way. And they just kept trying. They wouldn't give up. They just kept coming back for more. And, they, you know, with each failure, there was an experience to be had. And they learned from the failure. And they would try again and try again and try again. And you can look at, you know, Stephen Jobs, Bill Gates, you know, Warren Bobby. All these people failed in the beginning. They failed numerous times. But they just wouldn't quit. They just kept coming back. And that was the key is to keep getting back up. And I learned that from my mother. She was huge on that. Never, ever, ever quit. Yeah. Her, her phrase was never let the bastards win. Yeah. No, that's that's
0: great. I think uh so.
1: Those those were the teachers that I went to. And um it was really important to me. And when I start my day to today, this morning, the thing I clicked on was Wayne Dyer. So I went and walked around the park this morning and I had my earbuds in. And for 30 minutes I listened to Wayne Dyer. Sometimes it's Zig, sometimes it's Jim Rohn. There's a lot of different speakers out there that I listen to, but those are were, were my favorites back in the day, and that's that's always going home for me.
0: Yeah, I think I think for me too. When I first got started, Jim Rohn was was huge, and I remember knowing how to use the internet to find content at a young age. So I just I just went through a bunch of Jim Rohn videos and audio, and him and Mister Schoefer and all that stuff, and it was uh, and then Tony Robbins, and I think it, it's uh it was, it's, it's interesting to think about, like, it's like, cause then it, like, I took a break from it, but then my life got better. And then I was just like, huh, I wonder, Yeah, it's kind of, um, I think we, we just expect things to change overnight, but then eventually like something you were saying, like managing your thoughts, like, I I think I really started to try to catch when I had, like, I was getting stuck in a negative thought, I think in like two thousand eight and then for two years I just catch myself and I'd say stay focused. So now like whenever whenever I have like a negative doubt or a self thought that comes down my head, I'll just subconsciously out loud say stay focused, Drew. And like it doesn't matter where I am, I just speak out loud or I'll like just do something. So I, I think so how what I guess what process for you, like what how do you how did you kind of get to to to, to get out of like, to start managing it, I mean, how did you, um, well, I guess that's not, that's not necessarily what I want to ask. Like, how did you, how did you decide to transition from, from the, I guess, going from realizing you could make good money doing door-to-door, working for the, the, the vacuum company, to I need to start earning money passively?
1: A couple things happened. One was, when I was 24, I knocked... Into a guy's door, and, and and this is 1984, and men weren't home during the day; they were at work. You know, women were home, and for this man to be home was unusual. But anyway, he let me get in to get my credit, so I could do do my demonstration. And when I was asking him, I was, "Why, why are you home? What's going on?" It turns out he had like 14, 15 single family rentals. Well, you know how does that work? So I, you know, I'm always been the curious guy and ask a yeah. lot of questions. So I just started asking questions. So we sat down in the, his den and I listened to him. I thought, you know, he has these rentals and here's how he got started. And I liked the way all this sounded. And, um, so, you know, I, I went on about my way and had to go do my demos. And about a month, month and a half later, I was knocking doors again, neighborhood probably about three, four miles away. And there was another man at home and we went in and he had like 13, 14 rentals so i asked him if he knew this other guy and they didn't know each other which i thought you know back then there was no rias rias didn't exist rias didn't come around until uh, like 86 or 87 so before rias there were there were called ran groups robert allen network and then he went bankrupt a couple times and so that's where rias got formed before the ran group you had exchanger meetings but they didn't know each other and so i got him i said there's someone you got to meet. So I put him in my car and he had a vacuum. I remember this because he had a power nozzle of a vacuum part between his legs because my vacuum was full of, my car was full of vacuums. And uh, we drove over to this guy's house and this guy trusted me to get in the car and go with him. And this other guy was home and we all sat around talking. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a real estate investor. And yeah. I, remember, I remember calling my mom on the phone and going, hey, let me tell you what I want to go do. And she's like, that will never work. You know, you'll, you know, you'll never make it. I told my dad and he said the same thing that, you know, when you have rental property, your tenants are going to destroy the house and you're never going to make any money at this and it doesn't work. And, you know, they knew all about it. Well, what they knew how to do was labor for a living. Yeah. They didn't know how to be investors. And, but they were still a strong enough influence on me that I thought, yeah, better just keep doing what I'm doing. And then when I was, um, 28, I, was due to get a big promotion with Electrolux, and I didn't want it. I just, I, I knew that I was getting out of my depth, you know, that I was still too young for this, because when I I became a branch manager when I was 23, and the average branch manager in America at that point in time was like 54. So I wasn't just younger than everybody else, I was tremendously younger than everybody else. And then I became a div- division manager, and hang on one second, I yeah, no got an offer to be an area vice president. Yeah. And I knew that I would not be well received by the other division managers. Yeah. Plus, by this time, I really didn't want to be with Electrolux. I, I, I didn't want to do this the rest of my life. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And real estate really appealed to me. For whatever reason, I kept, you know, I started reading a couple of books here and there. And, you know, I would find other investors as I door knocked. And I just, it appealed to me.
0: And this is before, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Oh, this is long before Rich yeah, Dad yeah, Poor yeah. Dad. Yeah.
1: It just appealed to me, and you know, this is back in the age when um, you said you were into multi-level marketing. This yeah. is when it this was the golden age when it first started. So the Shackleys and the Amways were just getting going. Yeah. So I'd show up to someone's house, door knocking, and here I am, you know, a young man door knocking selling vacuums door to door. and They looked at me and went, "Oh, if I could get him on my program, right?" Yeah. So, you know, I got, you know, Bill, why don't you come for dinner tonight? We're going to have a little program at the house. And we'd really like to be, you know, I could hear it coming from a mile away. Yeah. And I'm like, no, you, this is my job. You don't understand. I, and they're like, yeah, but, you know, you can make some real money with Amway. I'm like, I'm, you have no idea what I'm making with Electrolux. Yeah. You know, everybody felt sorry for me, but they just didn't realize. But anyway, so. Um, they I were feel sorry
0: I, for they always feel sorry for the people that could do the things that they wouldn't want to do or they think it's awful. And they have no idea yeah. how much you get compensated. Like when I was selling phones, that would always be the case. Like People would want to say, oh, you know, I can get you a good job at GM. I'm like, why? I make more money than I would working at GM. Like I'm 22, making like 60 grand a year. But I work at a kiosk, so you think I'm not. Yeah. it's the- I didn't do door to door, but I- having to stop strangers in a mall and talk about their cell phone, it's a similar it's similar. Yeah.
1: You're, it's direct sales. You're, you're, you, know, you're, you don't have a sales call that you're going on where you're knocking on the door where someone said, would you please come out and see me? Yeah. So that, that's, that's direct sales.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. But
1: anyway, so I, I went and took a real estate course because I thought I really want to be an investor. So I went and took the realtors course thinking I would learn how to buy and sell houses. Well, the one thing they do not teach you at all at the real you know, the, the realtors course is how to buy and sell houses. It was all about legal and illegal. You you know, we talk about what box this describes the box for you, all the rules, all the regulations, all the things you can't do. Oh my God, it was awful. And I spent five days there. Then I took the test and passed. And then I went into once I went into the first realtor and said, you know, I want to, here's what I want to do. I want to be an investor. And they're like, well, no, you're going to work at the phone desk for uh, six months and answer the calls and then we'll ease you into this. And this is how we work. I went, I don't want to sell houses. You know, I I want to own houses and I went to three different brokerage houses and all three kind of told me the same thing and it, yeah. it pissed me off. And, um, my brother was in Paris at the time and I just thought, well, let me just go see Sam. Let me take a break. I ended up staying there for about a year. That's so, awesome. I know. I loved it. But anyway, then I got called back and my grandmother was sick and that was in 1990 so did you just have enough money saved that you just went and could stay in yeah. Paris for a year? Yeah, and also I got a, my my brother got a job as a, first he was playing banjo down in the subways. Oh, that's cool. And then he got a job as an au pair, a, 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 a nanny. And so he was helping this family out with their kids and playing banjo down in the subways. And he really loved Paris. And then he went to an au pair meeting. Yeah. And, you know, the little old pairs got together and they're all like, Swedish girls and so here's my brother who's about five foot eight and all these Swedish girls who are about you know six foot ten but he found one named Lizette who he really really liked and um, anyway so they started dating a little bit and then Lizette and her roommate you know they were going to go out to get something to eat and so Sam said I'll, I'll go eat with you so they're sitting there talking and there was a guy like a table away who just kept looking at Lisette's roommate strangely. And Sam finally walked up to him and says, you know, hey, fella, you you got a problem? You know, something going on here that we need to discuss? And um, the guy said, no. He said, the girl at the table, you know, just. I like her. She's beautiful. I'm a photographer here in Paris, and I think she'd really do good in the fashion world. And Sam was like, right. And the guy said, no, no. And he gave him his card, and here's what I do, and this is legit, Sam. So they he Sam invited him over the table and we talked. They, they all talked. And um they did a test on Lizette's roommate. And um turns out she photographed well. And that was Claudia Schaefer. No way. Lizette's roommate was Claudia Schaefer. So Sam well, watched no. all this go down and then he said, Well, I can become a photographer. So he did and um started making money as a photographer. And then I was, when I was visiting him, he was on a trip somewhere and the phone rang and they needed him to test a model who was coming in town. And I'd been with him on two or three shoots and my brother was a pain in the butt. You know, he was like yelling at the girls and he was, he's a prima donna. He's just, he was a jerk to these girls. And, uh, anyway, he had left his camera. And so I told the guy, he said, man, I really needed this girl's really her shots taken. And I said, well, how much do you pay? And then he said, well, you know, if she takes any of the pictures, it's 300 bucks." Well, yeah. I said, I can do that. And he said, well, who are you? I said, I'm his big brother. I'm Bill. He said, your photographer? I said, I'm famous in America? Yes. <laughs> Where do you think Sam learned from? And I didn't know anything, right? I knew how to put the lens on. And so we went to this bridge that Notre Dame was in the background. Yeah. And I put on his lens that blurred everything in the background. So I just focused on the girl and said, just do some of that modeling stuff. She twirled around. He had a motor on his camera, so it was like ching, 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 ching. Yeah. And I put in the second roll of film, so you'd shot three rolls of film. And I uh, had her change clothes with each roll of film. And then, you know, went and got it developed. And if she just took one of the pictures, and it just turns out because, and I did this all in like 15 minutes, where everybody else was taking like two hours, and where's the sun, and yeah. screw all that. Notre Dame's in the background. You're good to go. Just blur it out. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh. And so all of that a sudden, I became a really good in-demand photographer <laughs> in Paris, and everybody liked working with me because I was so damn fast. And it was like, "What's your secret?" I went, can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're
0: just photography? That's awesome. So, so I was you did making. That for I, was a year. Do, I would
1: do one test in the morning, one test in the
0: afternoon. That was so six hundred dollars a day. How old were you at the time? I was thirty. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. So then you got called back for family. That's- yeah my grandmother was uh sick with cancer my dad worked in washington
1: she was in shreveport louisiana and um my dad said i need you to come home and i need you to take care of her house it was built in like 1930 and i need you to take care of her house and you've been wanting to do that real estate thing anyway and i don't have time and come get her house rehabbed and sold that's, i need you to do that for me and being firstborn, that's what i did and um so I didn't know anything about rehabbing a house, especially a house from 1930. And I did the best I could, but I didn't know how to knock on doors. And so I went around that neighborhood to say, do you know of anyone who's thinking about buying a house? And four doors over up, four doors up and across the street was a young man that owned like five rentals in the neighborhood. And he was interested. And I, he and I just sat down. And started talking back and forth about how can we structure this? Because my dad wanted 50 cash. He wanted to pay 15 on owner finance that he didn't, he didn't have the money. And we went back and forth with me being the middle guy. And we ended up doing a deal. This is in 1990 where it was, uh, I think, $23,000 for the house. Nothing down. No payments for the first three months. Then payments of $200 for three months. Then payments of 250 for three months then payments of three hundred for like six months, and then it would balloon out, and so it was, that was my first creative deal I ever did. And people, you know, people say you have to really know what you're doing. I didn't know anything. I just had a conversation with a guy and said, "Tell me what you need."
0: Yeah. And then he told me what he needed, and that was that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really similar to what I'm with how I got my house when yeah. I think about it. You just start talking to someone. Yeah. Just tell me
1: what you want. Tell me what works and. And we figured it out. And I looked at my dad, and my dad was like, "Well, no, I won't. Fit. I said,
0: "Well, then you come here. You come take care of this. Yeah, because I need to go home." Huh? So then that was. So then you went back to Paris, then, or how did you? No. Uh,
1: I uh, my mother called me up, and my sister, who's ten years younger than me, uh, was having problems in school, and she said, "I just need you to, you know, get her out of school and do what you can to help." So. I went back for a year to help there, and then I got back with Electrolux because at that point in time, I, I just didn't think I had. Everybody told me that I couldn't make it as an investor. That, that would never work. Rental properties never work. All those tenant headaches. And I listened to what they said. Yeah. And it really wasn't until I met, until I met my wife um, when we got married, and I said, you know, I've always thought about being an investor. And her parents happened to own about five rental properties. And that was the first person I was ever around. They said, I know how to do this. We can do this. Yeah. And she was the first. And she believed in me.
0: Which is so important, I think. I think you have to, because seeing is is believing for so many people. Yeah. I think you have to know, you know, I I think it's people. I I know for me, when I first was introduced to real estate was, the reason why I said Rich Dad Poor Dad was because that was like one of the first books I read. And it really just changed the way I was thinking, like, because I felt like I was self-employed, like, You know, being an employee or self-employed for his business owner and investor, I mean, that was not in the go to school, get good grades and go to college and get your degree with good benefits. Like that wasn't, that wasn't a part of what I would been indoctrinated to believe. And so then I went to like a rich dad seminar and it just like, it's like, man, I I came here to kind of meet people and figure out like how I could do this. And I just feel like these guys have something to sell to me. And that was kind of like, that was my experience and then, um, you know, doing network marketing, like they're like, oh, you don't want those tenant headaches and all that stuff. But I didn't realize how many other ways there were to make money in real estate. And I think a lot of people don't. And I think that's... Well, let's go, let's go back to rental property first off. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I found out is if you have a good piece of property. Yeah.
1: So my, my ideal house is a three bedroom, two bath, brick ranch, two car garage, level lot, established neighborhood, non-rental neighborhood. Meaning there's not a lot of tenants in that neighborhood and a really good area of town that's convenient to everything. Yeah. If you have one of those houses, they're never vacant. No one wants to move. You get premium rents. It's when you have the weird houses, the house in the hole, the house way up on a hill, the house, you know, three miles, five miles, seven miles out of town, the, the four story house, the, the one bedroom house. It's the weird stuff that you're going to always have a tough time renting. But if you have a bread and butter house, I call them a Walmart, Walmart houses, you will always have people that want those houses. They're yeah. always in demand, and when, when it goes vacant, you'll have 50 applications come in immediately,
0: the people who want that house. Especially families. Yeah. Good schools, good convenience. Yeah, it, it,
1: it's everything. But again, it was the three bedroom, two bath, brick ranches, two car garage, level lot, non rental neighborhood, great area of town. When you do those, it's just invest. Uh, landlording is easy. And so I left, I moved into this motor home on April the first, twenty eighteen. So this year. And it's now July tenth, I think. So I've been gone from home for a while. I've had exactly two phone calls from my rental properties. Two. Two. And they were both a little bit you know, like a, a dripping sink was one and the other was a dishwasher, doesn't work. So in both cases, I called my plumber and he went out and fixed both problems, sent me an invoice. I had my office manager cut him a check, done. So all that took a grand total of maybe 12 minutes of my time in yeah. three months.
0: That's not bad at all. No. And what, so, so let's get back to, to your wife. So your wife, her family was successful with real estate They had a little investing. bitty, like
1: three bedroom, uh, two bedroom, one bath, 1940 houses, you know, built 1940. And how did you, how did you meet your wife? Uh, she was a professional dancer and polls were involved. Really? Well, there was a place called Miss Kitty's in Marietta, Georgia. Yeah. It was a country Western place. Yeah. And, uh, they had a big dance floor and there was an upstairs and to support the upstairs around the outside of the dance floor, there were posts. So, I like the way I tell the story better than having to explain all that. But my wife was a prof- professional country western dancer.
0: That's awesome. And,
1: I, you know, every once in a while she would dance with me.
0: And, and, and so, you met her there. And then, just one thing led to another. You guys get married. Um, and how old were you when you got married? 35.
1: 35. I'd never been married, never been engaged. Kim was 37. So, she's, she's a cougar. Dates younger men, evidently. <laughs> anyway, so she snatched me from the
0: cradle, yeah. and um, she had never been engaged, never been married, and we got married. So then, and then because you said, and so you guys are talking, I'm guessing you're still selling vacuums. Her family's successful with rentals, and so you say, I've always wanted to do this, and I just always was told that you can't. She says, you can, so then you, you can. just start doing it.
1: Yeah, it, it was, really, and we didn't know what we were doing, and at the time when we started, I had... Two full-time jobs. I sold vacuums door-to-door, and I worked at Home Depot. I got a job at Home Depot so I could learn how to fix things because I didn't know how to fix anything. Yeah, I just figured I better get a job here so I'll at least be around the contractors and the men who knew how to do things. And Home Depot always did classes, and I thought I'm gonna, you know, I'll, I'll go to every class that they have and keep going over and over the classes until I understand how to fix stuff like wiring or plumbing or whatever else. And that did happen, and that did work. And um, Kim cleaned houses. She worked at her dad's pawn shop. And um, what else did she do? Cleaned houses, worked at her dad's pawn shop. Country
0: Western dancer professionally.
1: Yeah. She made a little bit of money on that, but not a lot. Um, And she hung wallpaper.
0: Wallpaper. So
1: between the two of us, we had five jobs plus we trained horses. Yeah. So I didn't train. I mean, when I say we, I meant more of she trained horses. And she horse. sort of told me what to go do and I would like, Okay, do I pick up this poop? And she's like,
0: Yes. And I picked up that poop. So that was me training horses. Okay. So um, so okay, so you get into rentals. So how do you how do you guys go about just getting started? And did you, how did you find your first house?
1: She found the first house. I was terrified. And um she found it on a Wednesday before the Tuesday foreclosure auction, and that Sunday was Easter weekend, and so we had to get this thing closed with no money over Easter weekend and to get an attorney, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And we, a lot of times, when you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what's not possible. Yeah. So we got it done. Yeah. And we didn't buy it to be a rental; we bought it to um, flip. Because I used a a home equity line of credit I had on my house, and that's where we that's where the money came from to buy it. And then, as it turns out, the neighbor came over, um, and he was dying of cancer. Wow! And he had he, he had his wife there, and then he had his daughter there, and she had moved in with her girlfriend, and then th- their son. And it, there was too many people in this little bitty house. And he said, "Is there any way that my daughter and her girlfriend can?" rent your house. And I never had thought about it. But again, I I wanted rental property. This goes back to when I'm 24. And I thought, let's give that a shot. So we went and got a mortgage on the house and we did it as a rental. And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue
0: how to be a landlord, but I started taking landlording courses. And so you had already bought a house. And one thing you told me to bring up is how a house is an awful thing to buy. No, a personal residence. A personal residence. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that. So Let's go to the, the 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 horse ranch we're selling now. So we're selling it for five hundred thousand. We bought it for two sixty. So we let's, let's round it. all. We bought it for two fifty. Okay, we're selling it for five hundred thousand. So that's a we doubled our money. Was that a good deal?
0: On paper, it looks like a good deal.
1: No, it's a terrible deal.
0: So why is it why is it a terrible deal? Okay, well think about it.
1: Yeah. I, I I we paid two fifty for it. But we kept it for 18 years.
0: Oh, yeah. So yeah. So
1: over the course of 18 years, when you put that on a yield curve, that's a yield of your money of like 3.1%. Yeah. So in other words, I can go do a mobile home and get a 75% yearly yield of my money. But instead, I bought my horse ranch, and it looks like we doubled our money. But in ca- really, all we did was we sort of kept up with inflation. That's all we did. Now, did you, do, do, now wait a minute. I'm not done. Oh, I'm sorry. But when we bought it, we had to go replace the roof. We put on new gutters. We replaced all the windows. We replaced all the doors. We built an outbuilding. Because when I say we bought a horse ranch, it wasn't a horse ranch. It was a house on dirt surrounded by trees. I had to go clear the land. I had to go buy a tractor. I built the pole barns. I ran the water back there, all the electricity. All the money we put into this thing, let's call it $150,000. So now I don't have 250 dollars in this thing. I have, uh, I have maybe close to $400,000 into this thing. Now do you see that my yield goes from 3.7% down to like 0.5%. Yeah, and then- Wait, wait, it gets worse. Now think of all the time that Kim and I spent on this ranch taking care of it, mending fences, cutting the grass, line trimming, spraying, just general maintenance, vacuuming the floors, everything that we did to take care of 34 acres. So what was our time worth? So let's say you just paid us each $10 an hour, that's $20 an hour, and you figure that into it. We actually lost money by owning that property.
0: Yeah. And were you guys, for the ranch, were you guys, were people paying you money to train their horses? Yes.
1: It was, it was a business property for a while. But then real estate really took off. And I went first full time. And then Kim followed me about four, four, four or five years later.
0: So then it just was, you had all this land and then just a bunch of upkeep. And, and she had, just- had horses. She's, she's a horse girl. Okay. Okay, so yeah, and horses are. I mean, that's a whole other expense. Oh, yeah, sore (laughs) sore subject. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so you you think raising crops is expensive? Oh no, not go get go go get an equine because then then you got horse trailers and you got
1: trucks and you the property we bought was for the horses. Mm -hmm. You know everything that goes with that: farrier bills, tack bills, feed bills. Oh my god!
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it. I know just from my friends that do small scale agriculture. If you have a, if you have livestock that you can't eat, it makes it really hard. Because at least at the end, you can you can eat it or something like that. But you don't you don't eat horses. At least we don't in this country. So it's like a, it's they're just uh, and they live a long time too. They're pets. Yeah, they're expensive pets. They're pasture burners. There's a lot of, I I've a lot of my friend. I have a I have a homestead friend. They. Friends, they homeschool and their daughter has horses, and it's like this sore subject because they now they're old horses, so they can't really sell them, and one of them's blind now, and all this other stuff. So it's it's a whole. I I I don't 100 percent feel your pain, but I know others that do.
1: Yeah, our three horses that were ours died on the property.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: They died of old age.
0: So, <laughs> so there was time. Is that what made you guys decide to sell, or when went?
1: As we got older, we weren't doing trips anymore, meaning uh, taking the horses out and going on trail rides and all that. And real estate got busier and busier and busier busier for us. And one of the things we like doing is traveling, but not so much with horses where, you know, where everything revolved around the horses. We started wanting to get a fifth wheel and just go out to Montana by ourselves. Yeah. And so someone would go take care of the horses, but off we went. And that was kind of the goal early on when we got into investing was by the time we hit our mid to late fifties would be done and we could get in our camper and just go around the country and go see things. Cause we really enjoy this life. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I got started. It's just when we got, when we put down our last two horses last year, us having a horse ranch, having 34 acres made no more sense. It needed to go to someone who was in their early forties. Yeah. That would be horse people and they could take that property to the next level. You know, they they would use the property for what it was built for.
0: Yeah, and I think that's kind of I think that's something that I know it's big, just from also hearing like you talk about uh, deals that you guys have made. Like you guys both seem to be big on that. Like the, the Freddy Krueger property, where it was you were going to foreclose it, and then it was like your wife said, "No, I think a family should live here, like a young couple." Yes, like they should, you know. And I, and I think that's. It's that idea, and I think it goes back to that idea of providing a service. Like you want to, yeah, I think this would be good for this person. Then you get an idea in your head of who would find it, and then you find it.
1: Yeah, it's like when we bought the first rental. We had
0: no idea it was going to be a rental. But Carl, who was the
1: dad, came you know, just, you know, talked to me and just said, this is the problem we have in the house. My, my grandson is sleeping on the couch in the den. There's not enough room. You know, yeah. Can we rent the house from you? And here's this man dying of cancer who would be dead within a year and a half. Of course we can do this as a
0: rental. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so I think that's, um, that's great. What You did bring up, too, because you said bring up a home, and then you mentioned mobile home, and the other thing I was supposed to ask you about was Scruggs. Um, Lonnie Scruggs. Lonnie Scruggs, because he's not related to Earl Scruggs, but the name I'll always remember, Lonnie Scruggs, because Earl Scruggs. Yeah.
1: So Lonnie Scruggs, you can go to lonniescruggs.net. That's S-C-R-U-G-G-S. So I first met Lonnie at a seminar in maybe '97 or '98. I heard him talk. And basically his story is, back in the '70s, late '70s, early '80s, he wanted to get in the note business. He had enough rentals, and he didn't want any more rentals, and he wanted to get in the note business. and was having trouble finding good notes with good collateral behind it. And then he got a phone call from someone and he went out to go see the property. And it turns out it was a mobile home in a mobile home park. And so he's talking to this guy and, and he said, I just, I'm not interested in buying a mobile home in a park. You know, you don't own the dirt. You just own this, this trailer. And the neighbor came out while this is going on. And, um, the neighbor said, Hey, listen, I've got a daughter who I'd like to move into this trailer that you're looking at. I can't afford to buy this trailer. But if you'll buy it, I'll buy it from you if you'll let me make you payments. So, again, here's Lonnie who's searching for notes and realized real fast, well, if I buy this trailer for $2,000 and I sell it to this man for $5,000 with you know $500 down and payments of $200 a month, I've created a note. Yeah. And so he did that, and it worked out really well. And then he started going to mobile home parks, and because in mobile home parks, banks don't loan on trailers that are already set up in a park because you don't own the dirt. And so therefore the person in the trailer fails to pay the park owner can just kick them out. And then there goes the trailer, right? It just, it really is not a good piece of collateral for a bank. And so no banks will loan to mobile homes, use mobile homes in a park. And so then Lonnie became that guy. And so because nobody would had the cash to buy them and Lonnie did, he was buying these mobile homes for $500, $1,000, 2000 $3,000. And then he would sell them for $5,000, 7000 $10,000 on time. He created a note. So he wasn't, he was doing a form of owner financing. And um, that's a Lonnie deal. And so I heard him talk about it in 97 or 98. And I thought, who would ever want to own trailers? And then I heard him again at 2003 at a Cree online seminar, a Cree online seminar. And I thought, nice man. Very pleasant man. Who would ever own trailers? Then I heard him again in like 2005. In 2008, the economy was collapsing, and I had an ad that ran in the paper that says we buy, sell, and rent houses or rent homes. And then my, you know, Bill Cook and my phone number. And my phone in 2008 started ringing off the hook in the summer of that year. Do you have anything at 400 bucks a month? Do you have anything at 350 a month? Do you have anything at 425 a month? And I just kept getting one phone call after another, after another. And I remember looking at my wife saying, if I get another one of these damn phone calls at $400 a month, we're going to have to do something with that. And my phone rang. And I answered it. And the, the guy said, do you have anything about 400 bucks a month? And I just looked up to the heavens and said, okay, God, I get it. I got to start doing Lonnie deals. So that's what these are known as by now is Lonnie deals. And um, so I went and told all my friends that I was going to start buying trailers and parks, of which they all thought I was an idiot. And, um, so that's how I got into it, but that there was two other pieces that happened. One was Dyke Botterford, who's been one of my teachers since 1995. I asked him one time, a long time ago, this is like 2007. So this is about the same timeline. I asked him, I said, if he lost everything he owned and had to start all over again from scratch, what, and he could only use one investing technique, what would that be? And he said, Lonnie deals. He said it takes the least money, the least risk, the highest yields, and you can get the same cash flow off a little Lonnie deal that you can get off a single-family house that you pay $200,000 for.
0: And you could do Lonnie deals, too, if, like, a, I was just thinking, I have this old-school Roth IRA, but I could roll it into a self-directed. Probably I don't still, think you can roll an no. old-school
1: uh, 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 IRA into a Roth.
0: Oh, okay.
1: If you pay the taxes on it, you can.
0: You couldn't do a, a, a Roth IRA with funds to uh, self-direct I'm, I'm sure
1: you can. I, again, I'd pay the taxes on the Roth Yeah. and roll that into a self-direct. Go ahead and get the taxes out of the way now. Yeah. And that way, everything you can make all this, because the yields will be so high, yeah. you'll be able to take out of that tax free. So pay the tax now, because more than likely, as we get older, as the boomers get older, taxes are going to only go up. And yeah. our taxes are pretty low right now, so... You're going to pay taxes, you get to pick when, pay them now.
0: And then you can start, Then I could start doing Lonnie deals. Yep. That's interesting.
1: And the third thing that happened was there was a friend of mine that I had named Brad, Brad Simmons. And he was doing a presentation and he had an aerial view of his mobile home park. And the question you got ask why, why is this worth it? And he pressed a little button on the clicker and a little balloon popped up above one of the mobile homes and it said three fifty a month. And then he pressed it again, and another balloon popped up above another mobile home and says like four twenty-five a month. And then this these balloons kept popping up above these mobile homes. So here's this little acre and a half piece of ground that was covered in mobile homes. Each of the mobile homes was making, you know, three to four, maybe five hundred dollars a month for him into his pocket off an acre and a half of ground. And I started totaling how how much money he was making off that little plot of ground. It was like, oh my god! And that's what really did it for me. And that with that, that's when I started I looked to my friends and said, I, I I'm gonna start doing of deals. So it was affordable housing. It wasn't shared walls. That's why I didn't do duplexes or apartment buildings. So it wasn't shared walls. And there's there's probably 70 mobile home parks in Bartow County, my my home county. And I of those, I picked maybe five of the mobile home parks. The best ones.
0: And they're still in a five-mile radius in your five-mile yes. radius, yeah. too.
1: Yeah, there's just a lot of mobile home parks in Bartow County. But a lot of them were trashy. And I, 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 it's kind of like picking where you want your rental properties. You want a really good high-end neighborhood, a non-rental neighborhood. So I bought in parks that were very well managed, very well run, not run by a corporation, run by a mom and pop, someone who I could go sit down and have a cup of coffee with, have a glass of sweet tea with, have a conversation with.
0: And those are the parks I still invest in. Interesting. I never would have thought mobile homes, but it's like, well, somebody's making money doing well, this. Yeah. You well, know, let's let's go back to the first but also one. Also, too, for just creating notes. I mean, just creating notes. It's the quickest and easiest way to do it.
1: Let's let's go back to the first one I ever did. It was yeah. 2008, and um, I won't go into all the details. I, uh, anyway, basically, I, I paid five thousand dollars for a sixteen by eighty single wide, three bedroom, two bath in the Daresville Mobile Home Park. And I sold that thing for $17,500, $500 $500 down. So they gave me a note for $17,000, 18% interest. Um, I think it was like $325 per month for however long that was. And they got within a year and a half of having it paid for, and then they moved. But instead of trying to sell it or anything else, he just called me up and said, "I'm leaving the keys on the counter. Thank you very much. We have to move." Okay, so I got the house back, went in and had some a cleanup crew go in, and we painted the we painted the walls and changed the carpet out, and I put it back on the market at eighteen eighteen nine, so a thousand dollars more. I got, I think a thousand dollars that time, payments of three twenty five per month, and that person was in it up until a month and a half ago. And then they moved out. So I now have that home back again. And so Kim right now has already started the rehab on this house. She oversees our rehabs. So she's making sure the rehab gets done. And we're about to put it on the market again. $23,900. So I've gone from seventeen nine dollars to eighteen nine dollars to twenty dollars on this very same home. And this time it'll be another $1,000 down. You know, $350 a month on a, on a payment. It's affordable housing. So it's three different notes I've had on this thing i paid $5,000 for it. I got my money back a long time ago. And my yearly yield on this thing is huge. Now, yeah. now you can't even, because I have no money in the deal, you can't even figure the yield. There's no way to calculate the yield. There, and you don't have it, to, it's kind of like this thing is paying me 300, 350 bucks a month, and I have no money invested in it. It's kind of like if you went to the bank and you said, okay, bank, I'm gonna, uh, I want to open up a CD. I'll put no money into it, and you'll pay me $350 a month. That's why you can't calculate the yield because you have no money invested in this deal. You've gotten all your money back. Yeah. And I will say one other thing about that deal. That was the first Lonnie deal I ever did. That was in 2008. By 2008, I was a very experienced investor, but with single family houses. That's what I did. That's what I understood. That was my world. I'd never done a Lonnie deal. I never done, I mean, I knew who he was. Nice man, been to his classes. So I brought in a partner to look over my shoulder. And I gave him half that deal. And that partner was Dyke Spotford, because Dyke Spotford used to own mobile home parks, hundreds of, I mean, he had hundreds of pads, hundreds of trailers. So who better to bring in to look over my shoulder than Dykes? And basically I called him up on the phone and said, I've got this great deal. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to give you half of everything. Just look over my shoulder. And so I brought in the gray hair. You want to bring in the seasoned investors. So when you don't know what you're doing, that's okay. Go find the gold nugget and then bring in the experienced help and give them part of the deal. So think about that. Lonnie Tyson and I did that deal in 2008, and we are still in this deal together. And that, that to me, is phenomenal. I, I mean, I talked to him yesterday about it. So I just think that's really neat that we're still making money on this trailer that we paid $5,000 for way back when. We've gotten all our money back on that a long time ago, and we're still making this check every month.
0: That's awesome. I know. That's, that's awesome. That's and mailbox think I money. had
1: the total amount of money I had risk, at risk was five thousand dollars. That was the total amount of money
0: versus two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yes, buying a house, and I'm
1: and I'm making you know three fifty a month off this thing. So when you can go buy the three hundred fifty thousand dollar house or two hundred thousand dollar house. And after expenses, after the mortgage payment, after the repairs, after everything you're still if you're making two hundred dollars a month, you're lucky that's after the expenses, making two hundred dollars a month, and I'm making three hundred fifty off a trailer. You see why you know we call these things cash cows, yeah, and my yield on this thing is you know like i said you can't you can't even figure it because I've got no money
0: in it anymore what box, right what box. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, it's uh, we've been at it for an hour, Bill. I could talk to you for another another five hours, but I'm sure we both got some stuff to do. But uh, definitely, next time you're in town, man, um, would like to keep in touch and, and have you on again. And uh, I just really appreciate the time you took today have lunch with me and everything else like that. Like it means a lot. Well, to thank me. you for thank you for the barbecue. Thank you it for was, the sweet tea. It was pretty good. It was pretty good barbecue. Great barbecue. The brisket wasn't it wasn't dry at all. Um, I know um, how you are about dry I, brisket. Yeah, I, bet, I I know Kim would probably agree with that. Um but uh I, her,
1: hers wasn't hers wasn't so
0: much dry as it is fat. She hates fat on her meat. Really? Hates it. I see to me you have to have a good there has to be a good amount of fat on it. Not with Kim. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we definitely have different tastes in brisket. Mine's dry. I can't stand dry brisket. Yeah, or dry barbecue because I think people oversmoke it or overcook yeah. it. Um I think we I think we covered everything. On I, I mean, definitely there's there's definitely more to 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 get to. But if people want to, um, I mean the. the, the if people, I, I guess the whole thing for you is with contact. You're like, don't email me or you have an email. No, call me. My number seven
1: seven zero eight one five eight seven two seven. 770-815-8727. Call me.
0: That's what I do. I today. don't coach.
1: I don't mentor. I don't have a program. Yeah. I just talked. They, they call me up and I'm an old guy. I got nothing better to do. So I just, you know, people call me and I take the calls and I answer the questions.
0: Yeah. I, I called you today. I, how many people have called you from your meeting the one day? I Um, usually, I usually average, I got my phone off right now, but
1: I usually average about seven, 10 phone calls a day. And normally I just let it, a lot of times during the day I'm going to let it go to voicemail because I'm writing. And in the evening I'll put on my headset and then I go for a long walk. And during the long walk, I return
0: all the phone calls. Yeah, I'm glad I called you early in the morning, then.
1: Yeah, and I I take the calls in the morning because I'm not writing yet.
0: And I think you said, I think you did say that in the meeting because I was like, you know, I bet I could get him to go to lunch and get a podcast with him. So
1: I tell people, you know, they're like, "How do I reach you?" Well, knock on the door of the mobile home, home. motorhome. If I'm here, you know, just tell me, and I'll answer the door and let's sit outside and we'll talk. And if I'm not here, sit down outside somewhere. I'll be back.
0: Yeah, and we didn't even get into the, your door knocking. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but I'd love to love to have you on again, and we can get into door knocking and real estate. Well, I guess now we got some. T- if you got time, we could we could go down that real quick.
1: Actually, I've got to get I got to yeah, get back to I writing.
0: Figure, yeah, we got to get you back to writing, but we'll 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 cover that again because you you knock on doors and make deals constantly. You go. It's all not so the much knock door. doors. Think of it this way:
1: I knock on doors and make offers. Yeah. So I'm not out there to make deals. Yeah. I'm out there to find uncomfortable circumstances. And Because I'm face to face with people and because I'm answering, I'm asking questions. I find the uncomfortable circumstances. And then all I'm trying to do is fix the uncomfortable circumstance. I'm trying to make it better. So it's not that I'm making, I'm doing deals. I'm making offers and my offers are just an outline that say, Hey, listen, you had this uncomfortable situation. I can help make it not hurt as bad. This is how I can do it. And they'll say yes or no. So I went out door knocking here in, um, we're in my Columbus this past Saturday and we made eight written offers. And here's the thing. Never talked to a single seller. I didn't talk to a single seller all day. I had 20 some odd people standing in the yard behind me and everybody was sure that I would get shot or doors standing in my face and it never happens. And people couldn't have been nicer. You know, they were kind and they're nice and they came outside and they pointed at other houses for sale and what was going on in the neighborhood. And, you know, here was the best thing. By the, so I went into a neighborhood. I've never been in, in my life. No one gives me any information about it ahead of time. Basically, I, I turn right out of the McDonald's. I turn right into the first subdivision. And that's how I find my subdivisions. Right. So yeah. it's very fast. And when we went in, we didn't know what houses were renting for. We didn't know the days on the market. We didn't know they had a fair market value of houses. We didn't know anything. And at the end of the day, one of the last houses we knocked on, it was me and another young man. And I, we pulled up in front of a house that was for sale. And I said, before we talk to any of the neighbors, before we know anything, I said, you write down what you think the asking price is, is on this house. And I'll write down what I think the asking price is on the house. Now, remember that morning, we knew nothing. Yeah. Neither one of us had ever worked that neighborhood before. And so um and I'd do a chicken dance bet. So whoever the loser is, I turn on the chicken dance song and you gotta flap your arms, balking like a chicken, and you gotta dance around one of the cars. Yeah. So I mean it's gonna be embarrassing. So w- he put down two hundred and sixty thousand dollars as the asking price. I put down $258,500 as the asking price. So we, we're not comparing notes. So he put down his number, I put mine. Yeah. The asking price was two hundred and fifty-nine nine. He missed it by $100. I missed it by less than $2,000. The thing is, that morning, walking in the subdivision, we knew nothing. And that's how close we both got by the end of the day. And it's just because you're talking to the neighbors. We're talking to the neighbors. That's where the information came from.
0: Yeah, every time I went to go rent, I remember uh, a neighbor even just approached me and asked me, were you thinking about renting that house? And I go, I was thinking about it. Why? The guy told me everything. Oh, they bought that house as a fixer-offer. They can't rent it. They've tried multiple times. They've had some tenants in there. They were bad. They messed it up. They had to redo all this stuff. And I was like, I don't even know this person. They told me everything I needed to know. And about. that happened all day on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody
1: we talked to, every house we went to, what houses are renting for? How many tenants? What's the ratio of tenants to homeowners in the subdivision? What's going on? What are the schools like? What's shopping like? All the information we got was from talking to people. Not sitting in front of a computer. No. And my information, again, you had two of us yeah. that got within $2,000 of an asking price on the house. And again, the guy that beat me because I had to do the damn chicken dance. Yeah. He missed it by $100. And he was he just he couldn't
0: believe it. And it's all from... Just doing footwork and Yeah, you, we
1: all listened to the same people, same homeowners, and everybody in the beginning of the day was like, you know, you you can't get good numbers this way. You just can't get good numbers this way. Yet he and I got the best numbers in the world that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean we there was a way we used to do things before the internet. And that's like yeah. and it still works. So. Yeah. And so uh well talk anyway, to people. Absolutely. So Bill, thank you so much. Uh looking forward to uh continuing to talk to you in the future. And getting you back on the show again soon. Sure. All right, awesome.